some way. Father, thank you for this time together. It's always good to come and sing songs to you. Thank you for some of those old hymns, those men and women who wrote those so long ago. Um, fun to think about uh, what scriptures were motivating them as they wrote, Lord. But we know, Lord, that the goal was not only just the birth of Christ, uh, how grateful we are without, we would not have life in him if he was not born. But we know his return is always part of the Christmas message. Because he is the one who will rule forever. And so we're longing for that, Lord. We're longing for a righteous government, a kingdom that will have no end. So, Lord, we cry out, Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus. Lord, while we wait, may we be busy about your business. May we be serving and raising up others and caring for them and watching our own souls that we're walking with you, Lord. We want to be found faithful when you appear. So, Lord, give us grace and mercy and strength to run this race. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you turn into Micah chapter 2, you'll find Jonah, Micah, Nahum, right in there, and all those minor prophets there. Um, I was thinking about a certain hymn, Christmas hymn, because they're all over the radio, you know, they're in my house, Uh, Christmas music's always playing in my house, my wife loves that, and and I got thinking about a certain Christmas hymn, and you'll know what it is here just in a moment. So I looked up the author of it, his name was Philip Brooks, he was a preacher for many years, Um, and he wrote a song, a particular song for his Sunday school class. It was interesting because he had concerns that the Sunday school boys and girls would understood, understand where Jesus came from. In, in 1868, oh, actually 1866, he made a trip to Bethlehem. Now you got to remember how far back that is. There's no electricity. I mean, you know, there's no planes. There's none of that, right? He comes back from that, and over the next two years, he begins to pin O Little Town of Bethlehem. He puts a tremendous amount of effort in that. Ten years later, he writes another song that's not as popular, but the words are amazing, called God Hath Sent His Angels to Earth Again. And, he, and that, that hymn, which I'm not going to go into, speaks about the angels watching God create the world. But even the greater excitement of the angels was to see the birth of Christ, the long fulfillment that God had promised through the seed of man that he would come. And, but a little town of Bethlehem was an amazing hymn. He was spurred on by this visit there. I want to read some of the phrases, some of the choruses or stanzas to this great hymn written way back in 1868. A little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the stars the silent stars go by. And you, I mean, when we, when we realize those stars are moving, they're just not standing out there. And he, he sees this. And then he says, Yet in thy dark streets shineth. In 1866, there's no electricity. And a visit to a very rural Bethlehem, particularly in that time as well, still, with no electricity, he's standing in the dark streets of Bethlehem thinking about the promises of God sending his son there and how that was fulfilled. And he says, the everlasting light. And I, what I think he was thinking about was Isaiah 9, that he says, you know, they will see a great light. And so here's the dark streets of Bethlehem. And then the writer here, Phillips Brooks, says, an everlasting light. And then what happens from that, he says, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. That's, that's a crescendo of promise of God in Bethlehem that night. 
Stanza two says, for Christ is born of Mary and gathered all above while mortals sleep, the angels keep their watch of wondering love. The angels marvel at what God was doing. First Peter chapter one, verse 12, somewhere in there. They, they marvel at the grace of God. They marvel at this plan of God for us fallen humans. Oh, morning stars, these angels together proclaim their holy birth. They show up to, angel, to shepherds and, and worship God and point them to this newborn king and praise and sing to God the king and peace to all on earth. Stanza three, how, silent, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. If you think about a king born today, I mean, we just, you know, we don't have kings here, but you think about what happened over in Europe not long when, I don't know, whoever's ruling and reigning over there now, but when they have a kid, it's a huge thing, isn't it, right? The whole world comes to the end to find out who this kid is going to be. The, the king of the world, the one who can solve all of man's problem is born and it's silent and the only people that are there are shepherds because the angels had to come and tell them to come. It's a very quiet, silent night compared to how man celebrates the birth of children. He goes on to write, so God imparts to human hearts, ooh, I like that, the blessing of his heaven. It's a gift from God. No ear may hear his coming but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him, still the dear Christ enters in. Boy, there's a, I've always said, nobody gets saved who isn't humble. You can't say, well, I'll just take Jesus. No, it's a humble. Oh, I need you, Jesus. Right? Last stanza, he says, Oh, holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sins and enter in. You know, God can't enter into our hearts while it's full of sin, right? So he has to do that justifying work to come have a residence within us. And of course that happens in a spectacular, simultaneous way. But that's an amazing statement. Cast out our sin and enter in. Take me, take me abide in me. Be born in us today. We hear the angels, we hear the Christmas angels, the glad tidings tell Come to us, abide in us, our Lord, Emmanuel. What a great song. What a great song. I know we'll sing it here in coming weeks, but I, I pray that you'll think through that as we sing it. But as I got looking at this, and particularly looking at Micah chapter 5 here, I began to ask, well, why was the song entitled, O Little Town of Bethlehem? I, I understand the possibly the size of it. But I think Micah here will give us an answer. And I, I put just some three really practical, a lot of application in this uh, tonight in this little short message um, of some thoughts here. Number one, God uses small things to resolve big problems. God uses small things to resolve problems. If you're Micah chapter five, if you've made your way through all those minors and found little Micah here, he says, now muster yourself in troops, daughters of troops, they have laid seas against us. With a rod, they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Well, 
Micah here, we have to understand just a little bit of where he's coming from. He's, he's writing or ministering, we should say, as a prophet during the reign of about three kings, uh, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, and that puts him about the middle of the 700 BCs as his ministry. And like so many of his contemporaries, Michael is sent to expose sin of the nation. Sin was destroying them and bringing God's judgment upon them, and they sent there to rebuke them and expose those things. Now, Micah's message comes just prior to the fall of the northern tribes, right? Assyria is going to come and, and take them. But, so this message is happening there, but, it, but it's mostly his prophecy is to the northern kingdom, to the ones that, that judgment doesn't come for another 120, 150 years from there. And you think about where Israel was. I, I thought about this today. They had so much prosperity during this time. When you study where Israel was, in north, the northern tribes, they were experiencing great pro, uh, prosperity. And God had given these kings, these Judean kings, um, great uh, blessing in the, in the people. And yet the nation would not rid themselves of, of idolatry. And then Syria and Israel, they joined forces to try to defend themselves against these Assyrians. We're going to see more of this. I'm going to preach on Isaiah chapter 7 this, this Sunday. We're there. He promises a, a child born of a virgin. We're going to look at that text and see the glory of Christ in that. But So they're trying to join forces. And as the northern kingdom, uh, as the northern kingdom um, is watching this happen, many of these refugees that were, where the battles were going on in the, nor- in the north, the refugees are coming down and they're flooding into Judah and into the, to the, excuse me, to the southern kingdoms. I'm getting my southerns and northern. I'm sorry. The northern kingdoms is where the war is happening. They're flooding into the southern kingdoms. And what's coming with them, think about this, what's coming with them is all kinds of idolatry and godless uh, societal views. So as the, as the northern kingdom, I've got to get my kingdoms right here, is going under siege and, and they're, they're trying to link arms with Syria and God's going to rebuke Ahaz because he's going to try to get uh, Syria to help them. They're not going to depend on God. And, and of course, Assyria will crush them. There's refugees coming down and they're coming into that area. And guess what they're doing? They're bringing their Baal worship. They're bringing their Ostroth worship. They're bringing all of that into the southern tribes. And so each providence is struggling. And here comes Micah and he is sent to rebuke them and warn them of their disobedience. And Micah warns of a coming oppression. There's, there's a time coming, and, and just like Samaria, like your sister, you're going to fall under the sword too. But eventually, Micah does warn them of this seas of Jerusalem. And that's where you see this in verse 1. Notice he cries out, Muster yourselves in troops, daughters of truth. They have laid siege against us. So soon there's going to be this call out to the nation of Israel, to these to the tribes there and to every city, send troops, send troops. Now, at this time in Israel's history, each city uh, did its best to supply a thousand soldiers. So not, not tribes, but each city would do their best to send a thousand soldiers. And, and to them, think about this, this was an honor to go defend this sacred city, Jerusalem, to them. And so most of the cities would muster up at least a thousand soldiers to go defend Jerusalem as the threat of the, of the northern 
in the northern war was headed their way. Now, when it came down to Bethlehem, they couldn't produce troops. They were too little. They couldn't come up with a thousand men. In fact, as I read and read, I, I never did find a number that they could send. They're just a small little town, and they were just too little to help. But though Bethlehem was unable to produce these troops, the prophet Micah, and and this is such a fascinating text, takes time to address this little town with a phenomenal prophecy that that they would have great honor in. In fact, the passage, in this passage, I think we find one of the greatest promises of the minor prophets. There's one coming. There's one coming, and it's coming out of Bethlehem. And it's a promise of the birthplace it's the promise of the coming of the Messiah, the long-awaited one, the Christ, the God incarnate. Our Lord Jesus Christ is all given in these few verses here. Now, you and I, can, <laughs> we can't predict our birthplace, can we? And if you could, that would be weird. Um, you just can't, you know. You, I mean, our children, three of them were born in the same place, one wasn't. But I mean, there's no, they didn't have anything to do with that. But that's not how God works, right? So God predicts, I mean, think about this, this geographical origin of where his son is going to be brought into this world to save the world. He, he tells us all these years, these 700 years before Christ, he tells us where Christ is going to be born. And, and of all places, God chooses a small town and a small family that are all in the seed, the line of Christ. Now, there's several reasons that this was happening, and we'll discover those through Scripture here. But I think one of them was he's limiting the number of people that could say they're on the line or they were the Messiah or something like that. Not very many people were from Bethlehem. It was a small town. It's, Bethlehem gets the word, a land of bread. It's translated that way. They were just known for their wheat and production and, and orchards and so forth like that. It was not a large community of people. And... and I think the religious leaders, though they knew that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem, they weren't happy about it. They would have had to have someone from Jerusalem. But that's not what God said he would do. And as we study the New Testament, we begin to realize the Jews in Jesus' day, they rejected Jesus because he made himself out to be the Messiah. And, and they were so confused about actually where he came from. Listen to, first of all, John 12, 49. He says, Jesus says, for I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command so that what, so what I say to you is what I speak. In other words, Jesus came, he constantly said this, I'm going to tell you what the Father's saying. He, it's another aspect of his oneness with the Father. Whatever the Father says, I say. Whatever the Father does, I do. He kept doing that over and over. He was teaching them his equality. But when it comes to the birthplace of Christ, there was this constant, uh, just a tension between Jesus and the religious leaders. Look at John 7 with me. They're, they're very confused, and, and it, it shouldn't have been this problem. They had their way to see who, where Jesus was from, but they did not take the time to investigate him because they dismissed him already. Look at John chapter 7, verse, so we're starting 37 here. Jesus has made his way to the Feast of Booths. In verse 7, he stands up now the last day of the great feast. 
Jesus stood and cried out, saying, Ah, if anyone is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. Uh, He has has ability to quench the spiritual thirst of, of man. Verse 38, He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He's certainly speaking about the Spirit of God and dwelling and and this great work of regeneration that takes place with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 39, But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. There's, There's an order to that, isn't that? The Lord goes and the Comforter is sent. Look at verse 40. Some of the people, therefore, when they had heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet, the prophet. This is the one Moses spoke of. There's one coming greater than me, Moses speaks of, right? This is, they're, they're trying to, is this the guy? But look at what happens, verse 41. Others were still saying, this is the Christ? This is what they're saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? And they said, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David from Bethlehem, the village where David was. So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Isn't that interesting? They know that Christ is supposed to come from Bethlehem. And nobody, these guys did not do their homework and figure out where Jesus was from Bethlehem. Because he came and was raised in Nazareth, the Galilee area, they assumed he was born there. And listen to this. This is how, this is how to know that they willfully dismissed Jesus. There were no greater records of the lineage of people than the Jewish people. All they had to do was go and go into the temple, find the records, and they would have known exactly who Jesus was from, where he was born. In fact, up to 70 AD, it was the greatest kept records of chronological order of of people. I think one of the reasons the Lord had the temple destroyed was so that no one could go back and show their lineage. Because they found such self-righteousness in that. But yet, notice in this passage, they, they have no idea he's from Bethlehem. Now, the religious leaders had assumed that Jesus grew up there, but they were rejecting him. And God in his providence used this little town, as, as you think about this, this little town of Bethlehem, this Ephrath line, to bring about the greatest the greatest victory, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I title this, you know, small things to bring about, solve big difficulty. I mean, there's nothing greater than our sins. There's no bigger problem in mankind than sin. And God uses this little town, little town. I remember pastoring our little churches that we planned out in the middle of, of nowhere. And it was hard on those people. And it was hard on us at times because you, half the time you can't even get a pianist. You know, half the time you... You know, you don't know who's even going to show up or if anybody's going to show up to church because you're planting a church out in the middle of nowhere where there's no heritage and there's no history of, of churches in some days. And you feel so overwhelmed at times. But then you study the Bible and you realize, wait a minute, here out in little Lake City, California, a town of 50 people, God has given the greatest message to, to mankind and I hold it right in my hands and I get to share it. That's what kept us going for year after year out there as we remembered that God does great things and even in small places. Second thought, God uses nobodies to produce great truth, kind of along that same line. Look at verse 2. He says, As for, as for you, Bethlehem of Ephrath, too little to be among the clans of Judah, for one will go forth 
from me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. Well, here we begin to see some of the genealogy of Jesus, right? The genealogy of the seed of Christ. And it's always an encouraging thing to watch the genealogy of Christ. And it's right in this verse. And and Bethlehem plays this unique role to the promise of the Messiah. The the word Ephrahath there, see it in in verse 2? It refers to a family. That's a family. And that family's in the light of Christ. And you go, well, where is that family? Turn to the book of Ruth. You've got to see this. Look at the book of Ruth. Get to Joshua and Judges. Right next door is Ruth. Ruth chapter 1. So he's not only pointing out a town, a small town, he's pointing out what would seem to the rest of the world a very insignificant clan or an insignificant family that maybe many people had even forgotten by that time, but not God. God has laid this down from the foundations of the world. Look at Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed. So you can see where Ruth was at. Ruth is in the book of Judges. That there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and with his sons. These are disobedient people right here. God told them, do not leave the land. And here Elimelech, we'll see in verse 2, takes his family, leaves Israel. Complete disobedience. And there he dies, his sons die, and so forth. You know the story. The name of the man was Elimelech. Verse 2, and his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were uh, Malon and Chilon, Ephraites, Ephraites of Bethlehem. Well, there's our, there's our family. And, and they were from Judah, Bethlehem in Judah, the southern tribes. And now they enter the land of Moab, and they remain there. And, and if you follow along, everybody dies off, right? And, and, and the book of Ruth tells us that Naomi, this Ephorite, her and Ruth return eventually back to Bethlehem, back to their families, because they have no men now. In fact, she discourages them to come. She sends Ophrah away and tells her, look, why do you want to follow me? Can I produce another son? And, and, and Ruth is the most godly of all of them, says, your God's my God. Your people are my people. I'm going. You can just see the hand of God behind this, Right? I'm bringing my Messiah out of Bethlehem and I'm going to take these disobedient people and I'm going to put them back there because there's a boyfriend waiting. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? So Ruth and Naomi return to Bethlehem. She marries an Ephorite named who? Boaz. Boaz and, and Ruth have a son named Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse, and Jesse gives birth to a great-grandson, King David. All in Bethlehem. Isn't that amazing? This little insignificant town that can't muster up enough people to defend, help defend Jerusalem. Now, when this great-grandson becomes king, King David of Israel, he's given a promise And he's given a promise that is so magnificent that only an eternal one can fulfill it. Now, as we make our way back, let's make a stop in 2 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 7.
Ooh, I gotta hurry. Make a fast stop. Second Samuel chapter seven. Verse twelve. When your days are complete, you will lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your descendants after you and who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name. We're talking about Solomon. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Wait a minute. Solomon's going to live forever? No. Solomon dies and gets buried. Then he gives a little commercial here in between. Verse 14 and 15. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with a rod of men and, and the stroke of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I will remove before you. So you're going to have these sons. They're going to be kings. Some of them are going to rebel against me. Some of them are going to turn against me and lead the nation away. But I'm going to bring my rod against them. I'm going to judge them. But nevertheless, there is going to be a kingdom that will last forever. Verse 16. Your house, your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Right? Forever. And your throne shall be established forever. Now, if you look at this text here, the Messiah is is been coming the train is kind of coming through nobody there's 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 prostitutes from Jericho in this and then all of a sudden there's great men like David but David does not come from great lines he comes from disobedient people who flee who flee Israel and 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 here through this God is going to put a king that can live forever um, and rule and reign now in that text you'll see the word or term or phrase forever is used three times And it's not a word that should be used lightly, particularly because this was a promise of God himself that David's line from Bethlehem, from Ephrath, would rule God's people forever. So the only way that can happen is there has to be this constant succession of kings that go on and on with no broken. David had to keep them. They just have to keep having kings. Well, wait a minute. We go down to a certain king and there's no more kings of Israel. So it has to be, then, it, then the other option is there has to be an almighty, everlasting king who will never die and reign forever. And, and Paul, when you get in Acts 13, I have time to go there. He's trying to convince the Jews. He says, look, David's here. His body decayed. He's not the guy. This is pointing to somebody greater. And David preaches this phenomenal message to these Jews that Jesus Christ is the king of kings. He's the Messiah. He's the one you missed. And he is our buddy. He is our, I mean, he is our king. He is, he is our ruler. And, and the more I thought about this, I thought, man, David was a nobody. God just loves to use nobodies. When you watch that, he, he's a shepherd. In fact, when he starts coming on the scene, they mock him. And yet from that line, these people, there comes a king. And, and just some thoughts, just application I think anybody who's a Christian, we kind of look at ourselves as nobody sometimes. But listen, we carry the greatest message ever told, ever known, the greatest truth that contains the greatest power and from the greatest person that provides the greatest eternity. Don't tell me, don't tell me you don't have a role in this life. That's the message we carry. And, And I love this time of year because you start thinking about Mary and Joseph, these outcast (laughs) 
And God has to supernaturally work. You marry her, Joseph. I know what you're thinking. And yeah, that's not from you or anybody else. This is my work. And you go marry her. What a beautiful scene that is. This last thought, real quickly. God uses people from nowhere. You know, when you go back to Malachi, excuse me, Micah, you begin to realize this town is just so little. He says in the first, second stanza of verse 2, he says, too little to be among the clans of Judah. Too insignificant is the idea of the word. But I think such an encouraging lesson how God takes these people seemingly from nowhere and does, does great things. And I, I think, as you think about this, you don't have to be from a big town. You don't, be, you don't have to go to a famous school. You don't have to be trained under famous Christian people. Be faithful to God. Love Christ and his word and, and believe that he will use you. I have to remind myself of this sometimes because you ask, you really going to do this, Lord? We're really going to plant a seminary? Lord, you know what that takes? I need somebody to help me. (laughs) Well, I got this guy over in Tampa. I'm already working on all this. Trust me. Oh, yeah. And that's, we're going to present to you vision tonight on our meeting, things that we believe God wants us to do. And you may, some of you may go, well, that's going to take a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know how we're going to get the seminary up. I, you know, how are we going to keep growing? I mean, where, where are we going to put everybody and kids and all? He brings people out of Bethlehem. <laughs> this is not a problem for him. Notice in this phrase, it was just so amazing. He said, This isn't just an ordinary religious ruler or some, you know, less than famous citizen of Bethlehem. It says he would be from old. You go, what does that mean? How how does a ruler exist before he's born? Only God can eternally exist. And that's what got Jesus in so much trouble. John introduces Jesus, he's the Word, right? And in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, so he has this equality and shares the deity of the Father. But he sets that aside and veils it in a sense and comes and takes on humanity and the, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and so forth. But then Jesus himself, as he stands before men that were hating him more and more, says, truly I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am, uses that tremendous word right out of Exodus 3.14, I am, I've eternally existed. Of course, the next phrase says they picked up stones and tried to kill him. This was what Jesus taught. Revelation says he is the I am, the Omega. He is he who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. He's the first and the last, the living one, the one who is dead. And behold, I am alive forever, Jesus says. So I was before, I died, and I live forever. He's the only one that can fulfill the Davidic covenant. And here he is in this little town of Bethlehem. How silent it lays there while we sleep. And God has orchestrated from the garden, and, and you can go, certainly go before that, all the way for the foundations of the world has orchestrated this lineage of nobodies and people you would never think in this line of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it all comes here to Bethlehem because some wicked ruler said, go back and be counted. And so Joseph takes Mary and they end up in the exact spot. Boy, that was a coincidence. Man, this is glorious, isn't it? all the time with us in his sights to rescue those who would believe. 
It's a great time of year. It's a great time of year, isn't it? And so we celebrate that. And, and look, you either have to believe that Jesus is God or you've got to get rid of him. And I was thinking about this today and I said, Lord, we're the only religion or religious group that believes Jesus is God. See, if you don't believe Jesus is God, you've got to do works. I promise you, go look, think about every religion on this planet and check it off. If they don't believe Jesus is equal to the Father, sharing the very deity of God, you have to do works. And that's where they're at. That's where they're at. And that's what keeps them bound. And so Satan takes that religious desire that is created in us to be worshipers and he draws it away from Christ and his deity. But here, way back in this little minor prophet stands in a very difficult time with a nation sliding away from God and says there's one coming. For us, it's Galatians 4, 4, isn't it? But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Let me interject this. Born in a little town called Bethlehem. So that he might redeem those who were under the law, right? The law was our judge, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Because you are sons, God has set forth his spirit, the, son, uh, the spirit of his son, in, in, into our hearts so that we cry out, Abba, Father. And doesn't this sound familiar to when we spoke on John chapter 15 a few Sundays ago? Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. Almost identical to what Jesus said. He said, you're no longer a slave, but a friend. Here, we are told we are sons. Just because the little town of Bethlehem produced our Messiah. Insignificant, off the radar, little group of people comes the Savior of the world. I love that. Reminds me. All right, Scott, no one may know about you, but you've got a job to do. Right? You're all going to somewhere where I'm not going to be tomorrow. Every one of you, you're going somewhere where I can't go or any of our other pastor staff. You're going to somewhere with the greatest message about the greatest person, about the greatest thing of all the world that someone can have their sins forgiven. Hmm. Should write a Christmas carol about you. All right, let's pray and then we'll circle around and come back in. Father, thanks for this time in your word. So fun to think about these things. So long ago, Man stood in a garden that you prepared for them and gave them everything they needed and soon found themselves looking for fig leaves. But here comes our gracious God killing an animal to cover them, Lord, so they could at least temporarily stand in his presence, your presence. And then you gave them the plan of salvation. There's a seed coming through you, Eve. There's one that's going to come that will crush the head of the serpent. And man will be free from his sins. Lord, so long awaited. In fact, most of the nation gave up. They chased idols and immorality. They lived for themselves. Lord, that doesn't sound like much different than today. Nobody was there for your birth, Lord Jesus. Only the people that the angels had to go gather up. 
But Lord, we're, now, we're there now. We love to talk about your birth because our life, our eternity is wound up in that. So we praise you for this time of year. I pray for each and every one that's hearing this, Lord, that we would, we would get excited about Christmas. With all the problems the world's going through, may we be full of Mary and joy because our Savior came to a little town that couldn't even send troops. So we would know God and have an eternal relationship with him. So Lord, we're thankful. Lord, bless our meeting now. We're going to talk about family business. It's, this is your children. This is your family. Lord, you certainly the head of this. And so may we do a good justice of uh, talking about what we believe you're doing. And may the flock be encouraged by that. So bless this next hour. In Jesus' name, amen.